And once again, the mysterious stranger appears out of the darkness, carrying with him his message of evil, carrying with him the strange banner that reads, uh, uh, I'll be damned, I can't read it from this distance. Oh, well. The ten-year-old pupil proudly displayed what he brought to school for show-and-tell time. You ever been to uh, show-and-tell time? You know how that works? Kids bring something that's very interesting, and then they bring it to school, and they show it to the teacher, and show it to the rest of the kids, and then they tell them about it? The ten-year-old pupil proudly displayed what he brought to school for show-and-tell time. Marijuana seeds. The teacher was aghast and told the principal. He called police. Officers went to the boys' home where they found marijuana, hashish, and an assortment of pills stashed in the dresser drawers of his two older brothers. The brothers were not at home, but the next day, the two of them turned themselves in, and they were put in a slam. <laughs> Ooh, I can imagine those two guys wanting to kill their kid, brother. Ooh. <laughs> Would you please, a little, uh, a little sneaky music there. Lord, there ain't no winning in this veil of tears. Yeah, I was going to drink muddy water. And I was going to walk out in that old ribbon till my hat floats. Oh, that's not the only one, friend. Uh, listen to this one. They had a uh, green thumb promotion. Uh, you know how these green thumb... This was out in San Francisco. Among the entries for the Plant a Tree Week, they had a poster, and it was a contest, you see, for posters, was won by 17-year-old Alex Allen. It wasn't until Alex walked off with the blue ribbon for the best poster in the whole thing that officials discovered that the poster showed a beautifully colored marijuana plant. <laughs> City tree planting director Brian Fewer said, Well, they're uh, not exactly the sort of trees we recommend for street planting. However, it was a very, very good poster. Very good, very good. <laughs> That's it now, changing times. Very definitely changing times. Uh... And, and that, uh, this is uh, not going to be that type of show tonight, so don't worry about it. You know, we're, we're gonna, everything's going to be all right. By the way, I never realized it. The first time I realized that Nixon had any kind of a sense of humor. I never had any idea he had any sense of humor. He just doesn't look like the humorous type. But uh, did you hear what Nixon said the other day? Well, uh, they have a bedroom window, a trick bedroom window in the White House presidential bedroom. You know, this is the his pad. The president has a pad, you know, and uh, they had this uh, trick bedroom window, and he had it taken out. The window could be operated from the bed. You just lie there in a sack there, and you press one button, and it would raise the window, and you press another button, and it would lower it. And here's what Nixon said. He said, I had it taken out, Nixon said at a congressional reception last night. 
I had it taken out because I was afraid if I pushed the button, I would blow the world up. <laughs> I mean, you know, just, you just never think of a guy, you know, this obvious, it's a year, right? I said, geez, you know, I you ever impressed the Greenland. Well, the whole, you know, that's the one that blows up, uh, let's see, that one blows up Europe. Here's one over here that blows up uh, South America. And uh, <laughs> he said, take it out, take it out, man. But, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, of uh, senses of humor, and, you know, not many people have a sense of humor, really. Uh, a guy last night, I don't want to say anything personal here, but a guy last night, I was on the ham bands here, and I, I was talking to a couple of guys, and among other things discussed, I brought up the, the, the general feeling that guys that are totally involved in technical things, hams, for example, rarely have a sense of humor. And uh, I just have found this. This is an empirical finding. I have not, <laughs> I've not made any uh, serious study on it, but it is an empirical finding that uh, most guys who get involved in a technical pursuit. Like, for example, I have rarely found a guy who is a true car cuckoo. Now, I'm talking about the kind that grinds his own valves and makes his own valve springs and all that, have any sense of humor at all. They're, they're, they're dedicated. They're, they're fanatics. Uh, this is true of electronic cuckoos. And I've never, uh, as, a, as a ham, you see, I've always felt that I was a, uh, totally out of water in this, this crowd. I have found very few airplane people with much of a sense of humor. You notice that, Herb? There is a sardonic uh, sense of uh, fatalism about them, but not really a sense of humor. And the, the rare guys that i found who do have a sense of humor always go around with that sad look in the eye <laughs> of uh, being the totally misunderstood... I don't want to even mention a couple of guys I know in that category, but I was talking to uh, this guy on the air last night, the other night, about sense of humor. And, of course, he bristled immediately. Because the one thing you, you can't tell, you can, you can make rotten remarks about a guy's dog, you can, you can uh, play hanky-panky with his wife, uh, a lot of stuff you can do. But one thing you never say to anybody, I've never found anyone concede that he has no sense of humor, none whatsoever. Uh, no, no one ever admits this. And so uh, immediately he bristled. I heard brack, brack, you know, wow, bark. And he comes whipping back with his 2,000 PEP watts on the 20 meters. <laughs> he blasted everything out of the way. And he proceeds to prove that he has a sense of humor by reading one of these cards. Are you ever embarrassed about people who hand you this joke that's written on a card? You know those kind of jokes? <laughs> You've seen those, haven't you? Millions of those types of jokes. Uh, if you can read this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you're close enough, that kind of sense of humor is. In other words, it's pre-packaged sense of humor. The guys that buy these these cutie pie little uh, uh, bumper stickers that range all the way from remarks about Snoopy or Lucy for president, that kind of stuff. Pre-packaged humor. And they really think they've got a sense of humor. And they buy these little things all made up, and they hang them on themselves. Uh, buttons. This is part of the button world, too. You buy a little joke that's on your button, and you <laughs> hang it on your lapel. But he proceeds to read on the band, on, on the 20-meter band, for all to hear this unbelievably corny piece of so-called pseudo-humor. See, and he read it to prove to me that he had a sense of humor. Well, it was a three-way conversation we were having, Herb. There were three guys, and you could hear the silence from the other guy. <laughs> there it was in one dramatic fell swoop or swell foop. I had proved my point. <laughs> I didn't have to say anything. All I said, I came back and said, now you see, that shows we had a sense of humor. 
And I said, uh, yes, it uh, certainly shows something, uh, Nat. And now let's get on to this. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, you know, humor. Of course, doctors have a fantastic sense of humor. I think they're primarily... Now, they're the exception, you see, primarily because doctors live in the in a very real world. I mean, they see it all happening. And especially radiologists. Uh, they, they see it all happening in spades and in black and white and in blue and green and in every conceivable color. And uh, so a radiologist, you see, that uh, puts somebody in front of one of the big screens and proceeds to take the big widescreen picture, and uh, he develops it like this friend of mine one day. He said... Uh, uh, he had this person, and he was giving him uh, the full treatment, you know, the whole total x-ray scene. And uh, he runs back into the uh, lab, and he throws the stuff into the machine that develops it, the pictures, and the picture comes out. And uh, <laughs> he looks at it through the through the light. He said, couldn't believe it. There's a corkscrew in there. Yeah, it was very clear. <laughs> There's a corkscrew with a handle and everything. So uh, he looks at the corkscrew, and... The, this person had been totally devoid of clothes. Obviously, it wasn't somebody that uh, had a corkscrew in his pocket or anything like that. He had a corkscrew in himself. I mean, it was, see? So he goes back out and he says to the guy, uh, Excuse me, uh, <laughs> you know quite how to say it. So he says, Excuse me, but uh, uh, may I take another picture of you there? I don't think the first one turned out just exactly the way I wanted. Because, you know, you don't run off half uh, shot. Or you don't run out half cocked and holler, hey, the guy's got a corkscrew, uh, you know, in, in his left ventricle or whatever it is. So uh, he said, uh, would you please stand there by the machine there? So the guy said, okay. And uh, he takes the picture again. He goes back into the lab, and he throws it into the into the hypo, and it comes out. And this time it was even clearer. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was concentrating on it, you see. He had it focused. And, wow, here was this beautiful corkscrew. In fact, you could even see that it was from Hoffritz. Yeah, uh, you could uh, you could even tell what kind it was. So he goes back into the guy and he says, uh, "You know, uh, uh, are you feeling okay?" <laughs> See, he was in for an insurance checkup. There was nothing wrong with the guy. <laughs> guy says, "Yeah, yeah, I feel fine." Of course, immediately he sees that little cloud drift across the guy's eyes when they, when the when the radiologist comes out and looks you right in the eyeball and says, uh, "You sure you're feeling okay?" And the guy says, yeah, 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 yeah. Ask all my friends. I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah. And my friend thought about this for a minute. He said, well, uh, you're feeling okay. Are you sure? Well, yeah, feeling good. <laughs> Great. Watch. I'll do push-ups. And he said, no, no, no. You don't have to do that. Uh, you're feeling all right, huh? Well, uh, well, uh, I don't quite know how to approach this, but, uh, well, uh, you got a corkscrew down in there. Guy says, what? He says, well, you got a corkscrew there. I mean, you, you, did you ever swallow a corkscrew? <laughs> Guy says, well, uh, I've got a what? He says, you have a corkscrew in your stomach. It's a good one, too. It looks like stainless steel, probably Hoffert's. Nice one. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, I'll be that good. I'll be that good. Is that where that corkscrew went? 
My friend said, is that where, what, corkscrew went, went, what? He says, well, yeah. He says, you know, it's funny. I went to a party here. Oh, gee, it's been four or five years ago. I remember that now. We're sitting around, and uh, we're having a party, and, and we had this uh, Chablis, it was. Yeah, we had Chablis. Uh, got this Chablis at Macy's down there at the liquor store at Macy's. And uh, this guy was getting married, and we're sitting around having this party. We drank about five bottles of Chablis, and uh, he says, you know, the... How could I have swallowed it? My friend says, well, you did. <laughs> That's where the corkscrew is. And he says, the guy got up with a kind of funny look on his face, and he wandered out. And I said to my friend, well, what did you do about that? He says, well, nothing. He says, it's not bothering him. <laughs> he says, what do you do? I said, <laughs> He says, if it starts to trouble him, of course, then we'll do something about it. He said, but, you know, five years, he's learned to live with it. I says, he's learned to... I says, you know, that brings up an interesting question, Frank. There are certain things have disappeared mysteriously in my life from time to time. There's a long pregnant pause. And Frank says, well, yeah, he said, uh, maybe you ought to drop by someday at the lab and we'll take a few pictures and... <laughs> I said, maybe it's best that I don't know. Which uh, reminds me, friends, speaking of the mysterious stranger that comes out of the night, this is W.O.R. in New York, and here comes a zingy right at you. Yeah. Hi, my dear. Who are you, and what are you doing here? Miller, Miller, I like you. Uh, we'd like to suggest, friends, that if you're going to lay in a trough full of magnificent, golden, sparkling, unbelievably uh, alive suds, that you uh, contact the Miller people. That is, go down to your local suds dealer. And you walk right up to them and you say, uh, Miller High Life, friends. Which will, of course, show you as a man of unbelievably discernment and taste. A good man. So, uh, make Miller High Life your next trough for friends. All people on the go. They all are drinking Miller High Life. Miller High Life, the champagne of bottle beers. Oh, in bottles and cans brewed in Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee is in, uh, what state? I don't have the copy. It's, where is Milwaukee? Uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Doggone it, it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh. There's so many little pleasures in this job. First steps on the moon, <laughs> he'll carry a special breed of batteries, mm. alkaline batteries, a long-life power source designed for space-age use, like today's EverReady Golden Energizer. They far outlast ordinary batteries in heavy duty. In radios, EverReady Golden Energizers last up to three times longer. In cameras and flashlights, they last up to seven times longer. And in toys, EverReady Golden Energizers actually last up to ten times longer. So for batteries that last longer, come to the people who've been making them longer. Get Golden Alkaline Energizers from the EverReady Powerhouse, where the power comes from. Home of a thousand different types of batteries. Ever ready. Would you want a battery that's not? No, of course not. I want everybody to be ready. The uh, magnificent golden ones are products of Union Carbine. Tower, Roger. 
This is Air Jamaica, ready for immediate takeoff. Most pilots would give anything to land a job with an airline that flies big, new, powerful jets down to Jamaica. So at Air Jamaica, we can afford to be pretty selective. We've got an elite core of captains that give you a ride so smooth, you'll hardly know you're flying. But when you fly Air Jamaica, you get a lot more than just a ride. Yes, stewardesses will now be serving bamboozles. We have to make an appetizers to go with them. In our fashion show today... Air Jamaica stewardesses are the most beautiful girls in all of Jamaica. And when they fly, they're so lovely. We call them our rare tropical birds. Air Jamaica. It's a little bit of Jamaica in a whole lot of plain. Hey, some guy wrote me a note. Uh, you'll be interested in this, Herbie. He wrote me a note. And uh, he said that, uh, what do you mean? He said, you fly these Cherokees. Why, John Gambling flies commercial jets and talks about it on his show. Don't tell me John has fallen into the Walter Mitty camp. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> Get out, get out. If he does, he's the first... Uh, well, no, he, he isn't really the first unlicensed jet pilot I've ever heard of, but, uh, I mean, uh, I know John. And I don't think John's flying any commercial jets. Now, he may be in those moments of uh, relaxing fantasy. I mean, but I, I don't... Oh, well, by the way, speaking of letters, uh, one word of advice to anybody that uh, is uh, feeling the urge to write... One word of advice. All unsigned letters. We have one rule here in my little office my little uh, my little bippy office there. One rule, of, one rule of thumb. All unsigned letters and cards, and I'm serious, all unsigned letters and cards automatically go down the big chute, unread. Just like that. So <laughs> if you've been writing me for 422 years unsigned, and you've wondered why I haven't knelt to you and done what you want me to do, it's because you went right down the chute. Boom, ba boom. Uh, speaking of going down the chute, friends, uh, we've got this uh, little thing here about the big automobile show that's now running at the Coliseum. I haven't gone over to the show yet. Have you? Is it a good show? I haven't seen it. Uh, uh, there was a big piece in the Times, you know, the Times has a yearly supplement on it, and I read that, but... Uh, I have not gone to the show, but I have gone to every international show that I get a chance to. Maybe you're not aware that international shows are truly international. They're really followed by people all over the world. And uh, I was at one in London one time, and uh, I was at another one in Paris. And these are giant international events. And the same people travel around to them. Uh, you'll see the same people in Paris as you will see at... Uh, uh, London, uh, you'll see uh, at the big show in uh, Italy. There's another big one in Italy. And, of course, one of the big major shows is this one here at the Coliseum. It's an international event. And if you want to see a wild scene, if, if I don't care whether you're interested in cars or not, if you really want to see uh, a peculiar kind of religious <laughs> ceremony going on, it's, it's a madness, really. Get down to the Coliseum. They've got it all there, man. And they'll be there through Sunday. It's the big international automobile show at the New York Coliseum. 
and it is probably the biggest show of the year there at the Coliseum. I think it has to be. Uh, the, the two of them probably are neck and neck. That one and the boat show. But this is this is a big deal. Now, uh, speaking of automobiles, do you have that uh, little uh, dramatic sequence? Once again, this concerned station presents another true-to-life episode in the average American family. And here he comes, that walking matzo ball, the father. There he goes. You call him son. We call him the expert. And take it from Pontiac. When it comes to cars, he is the expert. In fact, he's probably the only member of your family who knows there are more than 30 different kinds of Pontiacs and can tell the difference between them. Let the expert tell you about the revolutionary features and styling that make the 69 Pontiac the breakaway car of the year. Then, take him to your nearest Pontiac dealer right now. Who knows? You might wind up with a sleek new Firebird, GTO, or Grand Prix. And a whole new father-son relationship. <laughs> That's really a loaded line. Yes, sir. Whole new father-son relationship. He's going to talk to you again. And he will condescend to take his meals with you. And uh, if you're really nice, he'll send you a card on Father's Day and probably even show up after you've had that heart attack. Oh, yeah. He'll come back from the village and give you ten minutes. In between the, but that's another scene. You know, that, that, that's Pontiac, friends. The car that's causing all that talk, all that hoopla. Now, while we're on the uh, subject of hoopla and talk, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm just thinking about this uh, this guy with a corkscrew down there. And uh, you know what my friend, the radiologist, says? In case you're interested, he says it is a very common thing. Well, I shouldn't say very common. Let's very common. Let's say common. Uh, common enough that he has run into it uh, uh, a surprising number of times where he will run an x-ray on somebody, a complete uh, x-ray all the way up and down, whatever they call that. What do they call it, a workup or something? A complete x-ray series. And he will find and has found, totally without knowledge of the person involved, he has found several cases where the guy has had a bullet in him. The guy never knew it. Absolutely was totally unaware of it. <laughs> and and he, he, uh, he says that he remembered... Yeah, he, he, you heard him say that. He said he remember one time taking a guy and, uh, and x-raying him, and uh, sure enough, there was a bullet in his shoulder. And he... Uh, looked at it carefully, and it was very clear. You see, lead shows up very clearly on a, on an x-ray. There's no mistaking it. So he took another shot, and, and uh, he x-rayed it uh, carefully, and he uh, developed the films and looked at them again, and sure enough, there was no question about it. It was a bullet. So he went in, he said to the guy, he says, uh, hey, he said, uh, I want to ask you about, do you ever have any problems with that bullet that's in you there? He assumed the guy knew it. The guy says, that what? He says, you got a bullet in your shoulder. It's a bullet in my shoulder. He says, yeah, look at these films here. Here it is, clear, bullet. <laughs> and he said that they sat and talked for a half an hour, and the guy at no point could remember anything in his entire life. Nothing. 
He says, you know, you would think at least the guy would say, oh, yeah, maybe it was that time. No, oh, oh wow, you know, the big fight in the bar and, uh, <laughs> and all that. No, he said the guy could remember absolutely nothing. And what was even funnier, he said the guy was a very square uh, Republican type, uh, clean-shaven type. Who, uh, And so my friend Frank says, well, were you ever in the armed forces or anything, anywhere, any place where there was any combat? He says, no. He said, I was 4F. I was not in the army or anything. He said, well, friend, you got a bullet. And he says, from the way it looks, from this uh, x-ray, it looks like a thirty caliber bullet, which uh, ain't no BB. <laughs> the guy had no idea of it. And he says, this happens uh, quite, uh, quite regularly. I mean, uh, it's, it doesn't happen every day, of course, he says, but it, uh, it happens enough that he has seen it several times in his career where people had a bullet in them and were not aware of it. Well, did you hear about this story in England the other day? Did you did you hear this scene uh, from Bridgewater, England? Adrian Bennett discovered the reason for his persistent deafness in his right ear. He had a cork in it for 20 years. <laughs> That's a, you know, Adrian, 23, has been hard of hearing since he was three. Then he went to a doctor, a new doctor, it says. I don't know about the old doctor, but it says he went to a new doctor and, quote, listen, the cork popped out. The cork popped right out when the doctor syringed my right ear. It was a quarter of an inch long, and it was shaped something like a cigarette filter. When the doctor told me I had a cork in my ear, I thought he was having me on. I thought he was sending me up, but then I realized I was cured. I could hear out of my ear again. <laughs> out comes a cork. Well, now, my mother always had a phrase like that. She uh, uh, she was constantly insisting that one or the other of us had a potato in our ear, which uh, was causing a problem as far as hearing is concerned. Now, I I, uh, I don't know, you know, that uh, this... Uh, you take uh, you take the... I, I think most of us, as we go through life... Now, uh, I have a friend who one day was riding a horse down the street, and this was in Jersey just riding a horse, paying, you know, attention to nothing but riding the horse. And it was a quiet afternoon. The horse showed no excitement, nothing. She got the horse back to the barn or wherever it is that this horse lived, and then she's brushing the horse down, and she notices there was some uh, blood on the horse's hide, right in the back, the haunch there, big haunch. And uh, she brushes, and she... Looks at it carefully. She thought maybe the horse scratched itself or something. And here was a bullet hole. An actual bullet hole. <laughs> and the horse had been shot when she was riding the horse. And uh, she finally fished the bullet out, which was about an inch and a half deep in the horse's haunch, and she treated it in the whole bit. But uh, the horse was shot just walking down the street. Never did find out who did it or why or anything else. But uh, I'm just curious how, how many times this happens. I remember one time a car that I had. I'll tell you a little story that happened to me one time. I'm riding along in a car, and uh, this is a car that I owned, and I'm driving along as I was in college. And I'm driving uh, back from uh, college one day on a weekend, and I had a good long trip, like 300 miles, something like that. And I'm driving along, and uh, I noticed nothing. It was a nice sunny day. I drove into a gas station. And the guy is uh, putting gas in the car. And he says, uh, hey, he says, uh, what's going on here? He said, uh, 
for crying out loud. He said, look at uh, your, your gas is pouring out of your gas tank. So <laughs> I had noticed that the, the car was using a lot of gas that day. I couldn't figure out why. I started out with a, with a full tank, and all of a sudden I need gas. So uh, I got out of the car, and we walked around, and the, and the attendant and I looked at the car, and there in the rear were three neat bullet holes. Very neat. I mean, it was like a pattern, it was like a triangular pattern. Whoever it was had taken not one but three shots at me and possibly more. Maybe he missed with the others. But three neat shots, and two of them had neatly punctured the gas tank. The third had just punctured the, the fender that was over it. I couldn't, you know, I had no, <laughs> I had no, uh, absolutely no knowledge of it. Uh, it was just one of those things that happened. Uh, this happens quite often to aircraft. If you're interested in that grisly little bit of details, that uh, as uh, aircraft fly uh, over the country, particularly low-flying aircraft, it is quite common for them to be shot at. And uh, it's not an unusual thing for a guy to land and find that uh, he has a couple of uh, 22 caliber slugs in his fuselage. And in one interesting case, you may have heard about this case, there was a guy out in a cornfield, and uh, he had a twenty two. And uh, this was in Iowa, I believe, a couple of years ago. And he's out in uh, Iowa walking around in a cornfield, and he sees this, uh, I believe the plane was a C or a DC-4, I believe. And uh, he sees his plane go over, and without thinking, he just takes a pot shot at it. He just wings a shot at it. And sure enough, <laughs> he hit the vital spot, and uh, he, he cut a fuel line or something, and this uh, the guy had to feather a couple of engines, and he made a forced landing and came down, and uh, then they discovered that the plane had been shot. And, of course, uh, all hell broke loose at that point. And uh, I think they caught the guy, or the guy confessed or something, but uh, this is a... Did you, did you know about that, Herb, that that's a common problem? That uh, apparently kids particularly uh, go through this scene. Wow, <laughs> that's, an, that's an exciting thought, isn't it? Uh, let's say a scary thought. But it is, again, not a, not a totally unusual thing. But I think uh, that, that most people uh, uh, in their lives, I don't think the average guy has any concept, and I'm talking about all of us, how many times he has come close to genuine, fantastic, uh, disaster, totally unknowing. Doesn't even know it. Uh, something happened. Well, I, I've, I've, uh, I remember one. Of course, uh, there are times when you, when you know it. I mean, you, you, you have a, you have a wild moment when you almost have a giant automobile accident, something like that. But now you take this situ, uh, the situation that broke out on the Pennsylvania Turnpike the other day. You remember that scene, where uh, how many people got shot? Something like seventeen of them. But think of the guy who was in the 18th car that was the one that was just past the others. And he probably never even knew it. He, he didn't know what happened. And uh, he just uh, kept right on driving. And he will never be, uh, never know uh, for the rest of his life what he missed. He'll read about it in the paper the next day. He says, gee, you know, isn't that interesting? Well, we drove just along that road just uh, yesterday. <laughs> we didn't see anything. <laughs> By George. Well, <laughs> one went whistling right over his head, and he didn't know it. Well, this, uh, I had an experience one time that uh, was in a train. Now, uh, this is apparently also quite common, kids popping away at trains, but I was in a train one day when it happened. 
uh, train was going along, and it was an interurban train that uh, went between uh, Chicago and uh, northern Indiana. Big, fast, electric interurban train. And I'm riding along in this thing, and I was just a kid at the time. I was only in high school, and uh, there were two or three of us in the in the uh, in the car. And there weren't, there weren't many people there because it was in the middle of the afternoon, and usually these trains are filled during the rush hour, just like subways. And uh, here it was about 2.30, 3 o'clock, and we're driving, riding in this train. And all of a sudden, there's a tremendous crash. It just went pow, and two windows went out, one on one side and one on the other. Whatever it was that went through the car went through both windows, just like that. Some kind of a very high, heavy caliber rifle. And just went, pow, and a glass flew all over the place. And uh, they stopped the train, and there was a lot of investigating, but uh, nobody found anything, as far as I know. But uh, these these are uh, real exciting moments. You know, speaking of, uh, of uh, that kind of thing, uh, I remember one time when, uh, when uh, Flick bought a car. I was a kid, you know, and when, you, when, uh, when kids buy cars... By the way, before we uh, tell the story... Because, uh, you know, when you buy a used car, when you get a used car, do you ever wonder at all about it? What happened in that car before you got it? You ever think of these things? Do you ever, When you move into a new apartment, do you ever wonder what fantastic stuff might have happened in that pad before you moved in? And uh, once in a while you find little evidences of it? Uh, did you, do you remember this guy here a couple of days ago? Did you hear about the guy in Jersey? that buys the fertilizer, and he found his finger in the fertilizer? Did you... <laughs> Did you hear that story? Sure. It's over in Jersey. This guy bought a bag of fertilizer, it was a, or grass seed, or something like that, and uh, he's out in his yard there, and he's sprinkling the stuff away, and out comes his finger. <laughs> well, these are little... Like, yeah, it, was a re- it had a ring on it, too. It made it even a little... add a little, uh, little uh, Rococo touch to it there. And uh, there it was. And they traced back, uh, I don't know what the upshot of the story was, but they were going to trace back to the grassy company and find out just what went on there. I'm just curious whether there are some bags around that haven't been opened yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> what a terrible mind. <laughs> I mean, this Charles Adams world, man, it's, it's, it's going... Now, before we tell that story, we got a spot here to do for you. You got a little ding-dong in there? How about it? You, oh, yeah. Yeah, we got great Shanghai here. Oh, absolutely. If uh, you're, uh, you're going to be scouting around this uh, coming this coming weekend looking for some, some real scarf friends, we'd like to recommend the old great Shanghai, Dad. I mean, you know, Charlie Chan used to eat there all the time. And, uh, oh, sure, if, if uh, Charlie was around today, he would be the first to tell you that uh, that great Sunday brunch that they have at uh, the great Shanghai... Oh, go all the way. Me, I'm number one son. Always scoff big on Sunday. So, uh, you know, if you're a cheapie and uh, you like to eat good, for $2 and a half, you can have this gigantic, fantastic Chinese food brunch. You know, brunch is a Chinese word, you know. And uh, you can, all you can eat for $2 and a half, and children under four feet tall are half price. They persist in that madness. Children under four feet tall are half price. And they have all kinds of appetizers, fried wonton, egg roll, soup, sweet and sour, spare ribs, the whole bit. And uh, the Great Shanghai is at 103rd and Broadway. The IRT goes right there. You just hop out, and you run in real fast and start eating like a pig. Just open your trap, and they'll start shoveling it in. You give them two and a half, and that's it. You can sit there until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
just getting sickeningly fat. That's a Great Shanghai, 103rd and Broadway. Right, gang? <laughs> oh, oh, yes, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, commercials, uh, this is not really a commercial. It's an important announcement. So if you'll bring me a little razzmatazz drum music, please, if you will. Bring it in. sensuality, pure sensuality, the delving into the innermost psyche of man's innermost place where he lives, friends. Yes, pure rampant eroticism is going to come to Princeton University, of all places, right in the heart of the establishment, where the ivy grows thick and heavy and the sidebirds go all the way to the knees. This is Princeton. It will be the 17th of April. Mark that down in your calendar. The 17th of April at 8 p.m. in Alexander Hall. Yours truly will stride out on the stage exuding unbelievable charisma. That's the 17th of April. And the tickets are available only through WPRB in Princeton. That's their uh, dynamic little radio station. And if you would like to buy your tickets in advance, write WPRB Concert, Box 342, Princeton, New Jersey. And underneath it, you just mark a little note, Erotica. And they'll know that you're one of the true ones. All seats are two bucks, 17th of April, 8 o'clock. We fully intend to get busted. Thank you, Herm. That was very good. Gee, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> that was so great. Uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, the, the, most of us spend our lives uh, looking the other way uh, when danger comes around. There really are two kinds of people. There are the runners away, and then there are the runners too. And it's hard to tell which one is which. Uh, because quite often the runners away will masquerade as the runners too. And uh, this is the Walter Mitty scene, where uh, uh, people will pretend that they're dynamic and they're very, very brave. And, and uh, well, you see a lot of this in men's clothing these days. Uh, there's a little touch of... Uh, the three musketeers now becoming very, very strong in the, in the men's clothing world where guys will... I, I, I'm looking forward to the day. It won't be long either. Where guys will have little symbolic daggers and swords around their waist. Sure, it's got to come. Already they've got little silver buckles on the shoes and ruffles and the whole bit. And They're going to start carrying snuff boxes too. I, I, I think that's got to come. And I'm waiting for the first duel to break out at Barney's in the mod shop when the two guys uh, one slighted the other uh, these things are happen over the most uh, trivial things of course a duel the best uh, remember this that uh, a duel is only important if it's fought over what appears to be to the world a trivial issue now if you fight a duel over an important issue that's just a fight but a duel uh, fought because uh, well uh, that bad thing that happened at the restaurant the other night 
when Fred walked over and talked to that awful person, Howard. Uh, this, uh, uh, this, this, this is the kind of thing that causes duels. And I'm looking forward to the <laughs> that newest development in the mob world. But uh, speaking of uh, guys that look for danger, there's a little piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal. And I just want you to listen to this cat. Now, the Wall Street Journal, you wouldn't expect anything like this in the Wall Street Journal. But here it is on the front page. And it's by W. Stewart Pinkerton, Jr. Now, isn't that a great name for a Wall Street Journal special reporter? <laughs> I could just see this guy. W. Stewart Pinkerton, Jr. But uh, here's, the, here's the little piece that I think should be reported to you. Some people say Evel Knievel is daring. Other people say he's stupid. Mr. Knievel, a 30-year-old whose athletic-looking body is composed largely of scar tissue and surgical steel, likes to jump over things on his motorcycle. On one of his first jumps, he tried to clear two mountain lions and a pen of rattlesnakes. He didn't. He hit the rattlesnake pen, breaking his ankle and freeing some of the rattlers who then immediately took after him. <laughs> All right, friends. Last year in Las Vegas, he tried to clear some elaborate fountains. He couldn't hold on to the handlebars, crashed into the pavement at 80 miles an hour, bounced 60 yards across a parking lot, and hit a brick wall head-on. At that point, he broke his hip, his pelvis, and several ribs. He suffered a severe brain concussion. A few months ago, he broke his left hip again, as well as his shoulder, when he was trying to clear 16 automobiles on his motorcycle. And now, Ethel, buoyed up by his great success, his plan... <laughs> He sounds like he doesn't clear anything, this guy ever. He just tries it all the time. Buoyed up by his great success, he is now planning his greatest, most fantastic leap yet. He is planning to jump across the mile-wide Grand Canyon using a long takeoff ramp, a jet-propelled motorcycle, and an elaborate parachute system that he hopes will float him down on the other side. Quote, there is no margin for error, he concedes. Everything has to click. I wonder if he's cleared that with the FAA. That doesn't. Sound, that sounds like this guy's airborne. But now there you go, friends. On the one hand, there's old Chicken U, who spends all of his time hiding under privet hedges and wearing tin hats and worrying about the state of the world. And then there's guys like Knievel, which is closest to the truth about us. Somewhere out in the darkness, there's a guy walking around with a Hoffert's corkscrew in his guts. I'll bet, and money, I'll just bet that he said to somebody, Hey, watch this. I'll bet you can't do this. And down it went. Conveniently blocked out by the Chambly. So, uh, <laughs> all right, all right. What is it all about? I mean, which one? Who wins? All right. Who cares? Which is a better question, too. Because it's all part of the great Gullimopri, friends. It's all part of the great... I'm glad that Arnold got the cork out of his ear. And uh, probably there's a lot of you that got corks where you don't expect corks to be. Maybe that's what your problem is.